The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Tonight to Exodus chapter 31. Uh, Exodus chapter 31, and this afternoon we continue our study of the old tabernacle, or the tabernacle, discussing the workmen that God chose to make all the beautiful furnishings and the structure of the tent of the congregation. Now, if you'll look in Exodus chapter 31, beginning in verse number 1, and if you've read Exodus, you would, you would notice if you perused a little bit the previous uh, chapters, the many different things that needed to be made. And in chapter 31, we have the workmen who are chosen to make all of these things that God said need to be made to uh, accommodate the tabernacle worship. So in Exodus 31, in verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have given by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all I have commanded thee. These lessons on the tabernacle afford us an, an opportunity to learn how that God uses people to accomplish his work. I think we're all aware that God is the creator, and God could just speak things into existence if he wanted to do that. But rather than always speaking things into existence, God has finished his creation and now he uses other instruments or other means to accomplish his work. And the means that he uses uh, in the worship of the tabernacle and our church and in other places, uh, that instrument, uh, well, he uses it's people. God uses people. And in this case, we see here he uses human artisanry. Uh, abilities the, to craft certain things that God gives people, special abilities. Now, in the uh, following verses are various furnishings that are made for worship. That would be altars, the, the laver, the table of showbread, the mercy seat, and so on. And each of these required a level of skill that was beyond normal capabilities of these Israelite people. Now, if there were any in Israel that had this level of skill... God wanted more than just workmen. God also wants people that have a heart to do the work. God wants people that uh, love to do the work and are reverent and worship him as they work. And so God requires consecration in the work that he calls us to do. There are many uh, good preachers that are trained in seminaries. They take courses in public speaking, in homiletics, learning how to preach and how to captivate a crowd with their preaching. But the way that a man speaks and the education that he has is not really a sure way of knowing if God is with the preacher or if God has chosen him to the ministry. The gift of ministry may look similar 
uh, on the surface to pretenders, uh, people who aren't called by God. So the thing that is distinguishing, distinguishing between those called by God and those not called by God is the heart. And that's the dedication of the man to, to worship God in what he does and to glorify God with his gift and always to lift up the name of Christ. God must be glorified in his church. And certainly that's true as we look at the tabernacle. The tent and the furnishings of it were about nothing but the triune God, the great God who saves us. And mostly it was a vehicle for us to learn about one particular person of the Godhead, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who is mediator, redeemer, intercessor, and savior. So we wouldn't expect that God would choose anyone to do this work uh, that just has natural ability alone. That's not the criteria that we have here. God is the one who gives for the work. So the selection of people to do his uh, work in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the way that God works with the New Testament church. Now, we know the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. No one really understood anything about the church. But as we look back, and now that we know about the New Testament church, we can look at these things in the Old Testament and learn by example how that God works in the New Testament church. Now, the tabernacle shows that God's work is specialized. He created a body with many members that he gifts to do his work. Spiritually and physically, there's much work to do in God's house, and God selects the workmen to do it. Well, this was point number one of our outline from last week, and that is that God selects the workmen. In verse 2 and verse 6, there are two men that are chosen to do the work, Bezaleel, was uh, selected with his helper Aholiab. They oversaw all of the work and all those that helped in the work. And we examined the selection of these two men and we noticed, first of all, that it was a divine call, that God is the one who did this. And we can't help but notice this is always the way that God works. God's ways do not change. God decides who will serve. God decides who he will call. God never consults to make his decisions. He doesn't need to consult because he has a perfectly ordered plan. He, he never needs any adjustments to it. There are no contingencies that God doesn't see through and doesn't see around and nothing that God didn't foresee because God foresees only those things that he has determined. When we talk about the foreknowledge of God, there's nothing that God sees in the future that is determined by what we will do, but we do what God has already determined. Now, the call from God is also a distinct call. He has a job in mind, and he has a person to do the job. And then according to the measure of the grace that's needed, God gifts the workman to do his work. God gives grace according to the measure of the gift. He calls, and he will gift, he will guide. And he never leaves us without the ability to do all that he requires. Then our second observation uh, was that God equips the workman. In the third verse we read, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Now, this is where we begin from last week's discussion, and I want to follow up on this point. And we ended with the thought that it is God who gives us the capacity to serve. God gives the capacity to serve. Now, our discussion was how that Israel was not trained for this kind of work. For 200 years in slavery in Egypt, they were slaves to the pharaohs. 
After Joseph died, there was a new Pharaoh that came to power. A new dynasty began to reign in Egypt. And those new rulers had no relationship with Joseph. And they didn't show the past favor that was shown to the Hebrews. Israel, and here we will be talking about pre-state Israel because they don't become a nation until they get the Ten Commandments. But Israel, pre-state Israel, was given the best of the land of Egypt to live in. There they grew and they prospered. But under the pharaohs, the new pharaohs, they lost their privileges. They were forced into slave labor. They were tasked with the uh, work of making bricks for the magnificent building projects of Egypt. And so they were slave laborers, they were bricklayers, but they weren't artisans. And so when Moses was given the plans for the tabernacle at Sinai, he had this list of materials that he brought down from the mountain that required all of these fine uh, crafted articles. Now God, of course, had already provided the materials for them. This was when they, uh, Israel plundered Egypt upon their exit. But until they saw what those riches were to be used for, they had no idea, no clue of what God required of them. So Moses had all these instructions, and before he could raise even the first objection that I have no one with the skills to make these things, God said, well, I've already chosen. I've already chosen two, Bezaliel and Aholiab, and I've given them wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all the skills that are required. Now, that's a great lesson for the church, that God gifts people to do his work. God supplies for his church both spiritually and physically. God, of course, gave Israel spiritual leaders. Uh, he gave a priesthood for that purpose. Aaron and his sons were chosen as priests. And you think about Aaron, but Aaron started out with no, no knowledge of a specialized priesthood or what he was to do as a priest. He wasn't a priest before, but God required this of him. And then God made Aaron a model for other priests to follow. And so for centuries after this, the priesthood was upheld until Christ came to abolish it by establishing a better priesthood. Aaron in this was both a type of Christ and a type for ministers. He typified Christ in holiness and also the requirement that God's ministers be holy men. But as we look at our selection here, we're not talking about spiritual leaders. Bezaliel was, was not chosen to be a spiritual leader he was asked to do a physical task. There's physical work that needs to be done, and his work is preliminary to the work that the priest can do. These things need to be made. Bezalel's skill needs to be there to make these things before the priest can occupy their office and do what they need to do. And likewise, we, we see that in the church, there must be people that do the preparatory work for the preaching of the gospel. At least we know that we work more efficiently when we have people that are doing all the physical things that need to be done in the church to make sure that worship goes as it needs to go. Now, as we look at how, how God gives people both spiritually and physically, we can think about deacons. Uh, deacons, uh, I know there are some people who don't think that deacons have spiritual functions in the church. In fact, there are some even Baptist churches that refuse to have deacons because they're afraid that deacons will get into the spiritual things of the church and they don't want them there. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this and all the proofs that deacons also have spiritual duties. I believe that they do. 
But as we look in Acts chapter 6, we find that when the first deacons were chosen, they were actually chosen to do physical tasks, administrative tasks, not necessarily spiritual things in that particular case. So God also gives people, not just for the spiritual things that need to be done in the church, not just spiritual work, but also physical things that must be done. And so from secretaries to sound, from landscapers to custodial, from musicians to transportation, God needs people, the church needs people to do what the pastor can't do. And I I need to say, as I, I think I should and often do, that we need to appreciate, and I do appreciate, all of our workers in the church. There is one classification that I would like to talk to you about for just uh, just a moment here that I don't often mention. And these are the transporters. I mean, the folks that volunteer to pick up people that are unable to come to church on their own. You don't understand how embarrassing it would be to have someone call our church, as I do sometimes, and they say, well, I'd really like to come to church, but I don't have a ride. I don't have any way to get there. Can you come and get me? And I would have to say, well, no, no, I'm sorry, but we don't have anybody in our church that's willing to come and get you. Well, that would be terrible. And people would think, well, what a terribly uncaring church that must be. Why would I want to go there? They don't even care enough to give me a ride to come to church. But what God does is to supply the church with people that have willing hearts. I remember one of the very first things that my dad taught me was uh, you, you need to pick up people to come to church. He handed me the car keys, and my first job was to take those car keys, get in the car, and go get people to church. My thought was, my first responsibility when I get the keys is to go out on a date. And uh, that's what I need to be doing. But my dad said, no, no, you're going to pick up people for church. And I, I did that my entire teenage life. I always had a route that I had to run to go pick up people for church. I didn't always like to do it. And uh, my dad had a more willing heart than I did, but he was more willing to make me surrender than I was willing to surrender. So uh, we, I would do that. But God wants us to have willing hearts and, and do things like that. Now, occasionally what God will do He'll gift a small church with someone or more than a someone who has the ability to do many different things. Somebody that will take on many different jobs. Those are people that I talked about last week that I just get amazed that, that they are able to do so much. They have so much ability. I mentioned Steve Bianchini last week and all that he does. And uh, I, I'm amazed that he can. But there are others of you that, that do that too. That you have those abilities as well. Uh, think about Matt over here and uh, the men that, that worked on the conference room and what a great job they did getting that done, now working on the library. It's great that we have people that are able to do those things. I was thinking about Jorge and what he does. You know, sometimes what the church needs is someone who is a bulldog. I mean, you need somebody who gets jobs done. I mean, don't like jobs to linger on and Jorge's one is always telling me, well, we're going to do this job, let's get it done. Let's just don't take a long time. Let's get this job done. Let's get it done now. But like some bulldogs, what you have to do, you've got to put them on a leash. So uh, at times I have to hold Jorge back because he takes no prisoners. And I think that are t- there are times when he would like to kill some of the other men in the church, but then you just have to pull him back and 
You know, he's somebody who believes in hell, he believes in the wrath of God, and he's willing to demonstrate it if necessary. So we, we've, we've got to learn, though. We've got to hold back sometimes. We do. But we look at this and we see these are, these are Old Testament stories that we read that are intended to teach the New Testament church. How does God work? What does God do? These things are good for us, but we can't push analogies too far. We, we need to learn to keep thing, things in perspective because rarely does God do what he did in the Old Testament like rain down fire and brimstone to straighten people up. So we have to work within the system that God gives us. But regarding uh, the call for, for other types of leadership and, and skills that are required, does this mean that God gives supernatural wisdom for every job that he wants done? Does, does he call people to do things and give them ability without training? I was thinking about our musicians, Melissa and Lucy, and um, did they just wake up one day and suddenly they've been zapped with the ability to play the piano? No, they had to learn those things. They went through the processes, they went through the lessons. But we understand, as, as I was demonstrating last week, we understand that God knew the time and the place in the future when their skills would be needed. And so rather than give somebody supernaturally to do them at the time, he's already seeing things way ahead of time. And so he already starts preparing that person so that they can get to the place that they can use their talents, their skills in God's work. God supplies the people that he equips. So I look at uh, Melissa and Lucy. Melissa, of course, grew up around here, and so she was, she was ready uh, to step in when that was needed. But I think about Lucy. Lucy's a little bit different. Lucy was in Minnesota many years ago. Lucy had to get here, and her vehicle for getting here was to marry Eric, and that's all he's good for, so he got her here. Uh, you can tell him that when you see him. But this is the way that God works things out. He knows where his people need to be at the time that he needs them. He doesn't have to perform an Old Testament miracle to make it happen. He just has the forethought, the foresight, the knowledge that's needed to get people into the right position. Then we consider physical work that God calls people to do. For instance, we look at our auditorium. You look around this place and you see that everything that happened here was done by people in the church. What did God do when we needed a platform? What did God do when we needed to redo those ugly walls that had brown carpet on them? What did God do? Well, he raised men with the ability to do that. There was Grant Evans. There was Les Crandall. Some of the work was done by Larry Jefferson. So God provided people with the skills. He didn't supernaturally gift them to do that, just like he didn't supernaturally gift me so that I could remodel this auditorium. And that's what he would have had to do because I don't have those skills. So if he said, you need to go do that, then I'd say, well, you better than zap me. You better send a, light, a bolt of lightning down and hit me because that's what's going to take to get it done. But neither when he called those other men to do the physical work here did he tell them, I want you to go preach in the pulpit. Because they would say, well, then you're going to have to supernaturally gift me to get up in the pulpit. Because they weren't built for that. God didn't call them for that. But God puts the people exactly where he needs them at the right time in the way that he chooses to do this. So what I'm trying to tell you is that God works things around in the church without needing to do that Old Testament type miracle. But still, he no less chooses people. 
And he places them in the church when and where they're needed. And I think that every one of you, you ought to think of your membership in Berean Baptist Church as God's providential choice. Now, we have a a church that's filled with skilled people. Music is a skill. Choir directing takes a skill. Reading music, learning the movements of music, that takes a skill. Guys in the back, back here, have technical skills that they learned and used to accomplish God's work here. But there is a problem, and that is there are people that have skills who could help, but they won't help. Now, no mention of names here. I could give you names, but I won't mention names. We once had a fellow in the church who could have done as much good because he had skills, skills that we could use. But when we asked, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't use his skills. Now, remember what I said? God wants people with a willing heart. He wants people to do the work that have a heart for God and have a desire to glorify God in what they do. I think about people that do these physical jobs. I think about the men outside mowing lawns and trimming trees when we used to have trees. Um, they would trim those. They would clean up around the church. That is also work that glorifies God. And we ought to see it that way. It's not just pastors in pulpits. It's not musicians with keyboards only. It's not singers with microphones only that glorify God. But everything that we do, that we accomplish here, in in making this church work and be a place where people can come to glorify God, that is glorifying work. So God gives the strength. God gives the spirit to do the work. And we must be ready and available Because the church, folks, the church should be our life's work. Everything else that we do is just to get by. Did you know that? Everything that you do in your life, the job that you have, all the things that go on in your life is just to get by. God's work is the primary work for the Christian. God has put us here to do His work. So recognize that. This is the work that lasts through eternity. The work that you do at your job just gets, it, gets you through the week and gets your food on the table. This is the work that lasts for eternity. Now, I want to remind you that uh, Bezaliel's work is a type of Christ. He's a type in spirit of the spirit and wisdom and understanding and knowledge that was given him. He was a type because he was called of God to do this work. He was a type because of millions in Israel... Uh, who who couldn't do this work. Bezalel is called to do it. He's the only one who can. He's a type because his name means in the shadow uh, of God. He, he foreshadows Christ who is God and who is the builder of his church. You just look at his name. His name is Bezalel. That last E-L on the end, that means God. So his name has God in it. So he foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is God. Now, the next part that I want to show you is some of the ways that Bezaliel and Aholiab typified Jesus Christ. Now, to prep you for that, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. There's something very interesting here in John's vision of Christ before uh, Jesus dictated seven letters to the churches of Asia. And if you look in chapter 1, and in verse number 8, Jesus speaks. He says, I am Alpha 
and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I'll go down to verse number 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Then if you'll just turn to the back of your Bible, last chapter in Revelation, chapter 22, here again Jesus speaks, uh, Revelation 22 and verse number 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. You know that those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In English, it would be saying, uh, Jesus is A to Z. Jesus would say, I am A and I am Z. I am A and I am Z. I am first, I am last, and everything in between. All words, all books, everything that you read is made up of 26 letters from A to Z. Christ is all of that. Christ is all in all. Well, now we go back to Exodus 31, and let's see how that truth is crafted into this text. And we might not notice it at first unless we just consider every word very carefully and the reason that God did the things that he did. Now, if you look again, Exodus 31, verse 2, See, I have called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of her of the tribe of Judah. In verse 6, And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. Now you look closely, there you see there are two men chosen, one from Judah and one from Dan. That is not an accidental choice. Dan is the northernmost of the tribes of Israel. Judah is the southernmost. The whole of Israel, when you, when you look at the Bible, is comprehended in an often made saying uh, of encompassing the whole land. They would say this. They would say, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the far north. Beersheba is in the south of Judah. And so to encompass, to say something that encompasses the whole land of Israel, they would say, well, this is from Dan to Beersheba. And that's all of the land of Israel. And you say, why is that important? Because these two men represent all of Israel. The whole of nation, the whole of the nation is brought into the building project through these two men. There's no one that's left out. And when we think of Jesus, the same is true of him, that he is the savior of all Israel. He's the savior of all the tribes. You, you may be aware that the tribes of Israel are mostly unidentifiable now. But one of these days that won't be true because God knows even right now who all of them are. And God intends to bring all of them back into his kingdom. All of them, from Dan to Judah, Dan to Beersheba, God's going to bring all of Israel back into his uh, eternal kingdom. And so the Israel is the place, it's the base of the worldwide kingdom that will come. So God's dealings in these kinds of things, the way he gives us the details, I think are amazing. When you take time to study and you think, why did God choose men from these two tribes? Why these two? Why not a combination of two other tribes? Well, here's our answer. Dan and Beersheba, Dan to Judah, that's a continual theme in Scripture to say everyone is comprehended. 
Well, we go on, and uh, you may think, well, could, could we use this little tidbit of information later? I don't know. But it should show you what others don't see about God. Often they don't see is that God specializes in every little detail. So you think about your own life. Is there anything in your life that escapes God? Is there anything there that's not by God's design? I imagine that we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to see how that all things work for our good. We don't understand that now, do we? But God does. God knows how he's going to bring everything to work for our good. So God, God has, the only one who has this kind of skill, the skill to make every detail over thousands of years work perfectly into the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, we see then that God intended Bezalel to be a type of Christ. God put the fullness of the Spirit in Christ. He was full of wisdom and understanding, and that's what we see in our text here as well. God said, in these men, in Bethlehem, I have put wisdom and understanding to make all these things that are required. Now, in verse number four, as we look at more comparisons, it says there, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, in silver, and in brass. We laid the groundwork for this just a few weeks ago, for what I'm going to talk to you about now. When I gave you all those symbols, those types, that, that one sheet that we had, these different types, well, now we start to work on that and we see how it figures into the story. How does all this typify Christ? Well, number one, Jesus does the work of God. Now, we see that Bezalel was gifted to work in gold. Remember that gold refers to divinity, refers to the divine Christ. He is God and God is glorious. The work that Jesus was asked to do, if we compare the two, the work that Jesus was asked to do was work that would glorify the Father. In John 17, 4, he said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. God told Moses he gifted Bethlehem for the work. No one else could do this work because God didn't put the Spirit in anyone else to do this work. And as we look at Jesus Christ, there is no other that is qualified to do his work. Jesus did his work because the fullness of the Spirit was in him. The Spirit without measure. And nobody has that but God. Now as man, Jesus must have had the Spirit to full capacity to remain sinless. He needed that to be a perfect sacrifice. He must be completely yielded to the Spirit to keep all the temptations that he had, everything thrown at him, to keep those temptations from settling in his mind and becoming sin. Only the God-man could do this. Jesus had to come in the likeness of man, but he must come without man's fallen sinful nature. You see, he's called the second Adam talked about that in the message this morning. He is the second Adam. And that, that second Adam differs from the first Adam because this is the perfect man. Jesus is the perfect man. He is as man was intended to be. So Jesus comes to be the head of a new race that is a spiritual race that retains God's image in perfection. So he's the virgin-born son of God, fully man, fully God, especially chosen and ordained for this work. Secondly, Jesus does the work of redemption. Bezalel was gifted to work with silver. Remember this? 
that silver represents redemption. Redemption money was paid in silver. But we ought not to forget the rules of typology. This is always a rule of typology, that the type cannot do what the type represents. So we see as in Psalm 49, it says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. So though redemption money was paid in silver for hundreds of years before this psalm was written, never in all of that time could enough money be accumulated for one person to redeem another. Likewise, in the familiar passage of 1 Peter 1, we read this in the opening exercise this morning, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The type, silver, does not do what the antitype, Christ, could do. Only his death, signified by the shedding of his precious blood, can redeem. And only his blood is enough to pay the ransom price. Now what we ought never to do is to devalue that ransom price by saying that it was paid for anyone who is not truly redeemed. It accomplishes what it was designed to do. Now thirdly, Jesus does the work of judgment. Bezaliel was gifted to work with brass, and brass symbolizes judgment. Now here we find Jesus typified in two ways. He was judged by the Father and deemed perfect, pleasing, and suitable to satisfy God's judgment of sin. The wrath of God against sin is unmitigated. It requires infinite punishment. Jesus was judged to take all of that. Jesus suffered infinitely. He suffered unrelenting punishment, the the hell that should have been ours. And then further, because of his perfect life, he's qualified to judge the world. He's qualified to put all of the world up against his standard, his perfect example, to be weighed fit or unfit. This is what Paul said in Acts 17.31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. He was appointed. He was ordained. And the validation of his ordination is the crucial authoritative stamp of God's approval. All of you should know what that is. What is the stamp of God's approval on Jesus Christ, on his life? His resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. Christianity works in all of its aspects because Christ was raised from the dead. So we see that Bethlehem was gifted to work in gold, silver, and brass. Now we look at verse number 5. It says, and in cutting of stones, this is also required, cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. Let me just pick out part of that, the timber. Jesus, number four, Jesus does the work of building. But the Leel could make beautiful carvings, furnishings such as the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the Altar of Incense. These were made of wood, of timber, that's overlaid with gold. They were carved out of timber. The superstructure of the tabernacle, the boards that 
made that, that supported the curtains that, that were over the tabernacle. Those are boards. That's timber that's overlaid with gold. Now, we'll study all of that in more detail later. But for now, we use this to show that Bethlehem was a builder. And in comparison, as a type of Jesus, he also was a builder. Bethlehem built the tabernacle, and Jesus builds his church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what Jesus does is to build a spiritual house because the church is not a physical building. The tabernacle is a physical place, but that's just the type. That's a type of the spiritual building that we have been made into, a spiritual house made for God. Now, 1 Peter 2.5 says, Ye also as lively stones, or living stones, that is not inanimate stones, not the type, but the antitype, the living stone, lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, Acceptable, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. How does Jesus build his church? Well, there seems to be a lot of effort, very much effort, by others to build his church. There are libraries of books that are written by those who claim to be the church growth gurus. They want to tell you how to build the church. They have their efforts to build the church. But it's not our job to build Christ's church. He builds his church. Only Jesus can build it. He's the one that saves. He's the one that puts all the parts together as he sees fit to do it. He's the only owner of the church. He's the only head of the church. He's the only authority of the church. And it's his spirit that guides the church. Now cutting the timber, using that for base material, the furnishings, shows us another truth about Christ And this would be point number five, that Jesus works in his humanity. Wood stands for humanity. Wood grows up from the earth. In just a a week or so, we'll read this as we get into Isaiah, the next chapters of Isaiah uh, in our Sunday morning readings, that Jesus grew up as a tender plant out of dry ground. Now, humanity is earth. Humanity is dry without spiritual power. But humanity is the only way that the invisible God could become visible and relate to us. Jesus was the invisible spirit who became the visible incarnate son of God. He was human. But the humanity of Christ could never be dry. The the humanity can never be without power. It can't be feeble. It has to be vibrant. It must be positively living for God. And so thus we see this is the way that Christ lived his life. We don't have very much about Christ from the time he's born till the time he was 33 years old. But you remember there's that one little story that we have in there when Jesus was 12 years old. This is, we have his birth and we have his baptism and then comes 12 years that go by and then we find Jesus at the temple doing what? And he amazed people because of what? The leaders of the synagogues were amazed at what? And the temple are amazed at what? His knowledge and his wisdom in Scripture. That confounded them. There's an indication there that we have that all of Christ's life was used this way. That he's always in this continual process of his humanity, of gaining that power that's going to be needed to become the sacrifice for our sins. Now we notice in the end of verse number 5, this word workmanship. Bezalel had ability in all workmanship. 
So let's take that into the New Testament picture of Christ. Point number six, Jesus does the work of spiritual creation. Betzaliel could do all the physical things that God required. He fashioned the gold. He took that silver and the brass. He carved the timbers and uh, took and made the boards for the building and all the articles of furniture. He worked with all the symbols, but he couldn't do anything of what those symbols represented. The tabernacle then points us to a spiritual creation, God's workmanship. What do we read in Ephesians 2 verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The tabernacle was Bezalel's workmanship, but the much greater, the type typifies something much greater, and that is that you and I are Christ's workmanship. We are the building. We're modeled by God for good spiritual works that he intends for us to do. And so as Bezalel made all of the vessels, so we are vessels in God's spiritual house. Now can we even fathom that? Can we fathom that God should take earthen vessels and put his treasure into them? Do you think that Paul might have been alluding to the tabernacle in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 when he said we have this treasure in earthen vessels? Could he have been thinking about the tabernacle and, and all the vessels that are made out of earth's materials that they are symbolic as earthen vessels to be used in God's spiritual house? representing you and me to be used in God's spiritual house? Well, how are unworthy sinners made fit for the master's use? There's only one way they can be. They must be regenerated. They must be made new. They must be made new spiritual creations. Now, this leaves me then with one thought for this afternoon, one thought left. God gives capacity to serve. And secondly, he gives the consecration to serve. The calling is never accomplished and the capacity given without ensuring that there is dedication to the task. God's work is not going to be done half-heartedly. God's work is not accomplished by a halfway job. Now verse number three says that God filled the workman with the Spirit of God. Philippians says that God works in us to do his good pleasure. To will and do his good pleasure. Now the New Testament commands that the way that this should be done is that we would be filled with the Spirit. Never in the scriptures do you find that we are commanded to be indwelled with the Spirit. Indwelling is something that you get automatically. When you become a, a Christian, God's Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. That happens upon faith in Christ. But we're never commanded to be commanded to be indwelled. Instead, we are commanded to be filled. Ephesians 5 says, be filled. Colossians chapter 3 defines what this filling is. That filling is to have the word of Christ dwell in us. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now this filling of the Spirit that it mentions here is not an automatic thing. 
It's not automatic upon your salvation as the indwelling is, but instead it requires an application of employing the means to obtain this. There is no spirit-filled person who is not filled with the word because that's the way it's described in Colossians 3. Now, we, we ought to note that because when you think that you are a very spiritual person, you may not be as spiritual as you think you are. It depends on how much the Word is in you. You know, sometimes we, we might think, well, you know, the Charismatics, they have, they have all these gifts of the Spirit, or claim that they have. They have all these gifts of the Spirit, so they have so much more than we do. In fact, you can speak to many Charismatics as I have. I had one, one tell me, well, what's wrong with you Baptists is that you have this whole table of spiritual things that have been prepared for you, and you don't eat it. You're only picking up crumbs off the floor. Whereas we have all these spiritual gifts that God has given. And they talk about the spiritual gifts, the things that they can do for God. But rarely, if you talk with them for more than five minutes, do you find any of them that know anything about the Word of God. They don't know anything about the, the doctrines of God's Word and can sit down and actually talk to you about those things. That's not a Spirit-filled person. To be filled with the Spirit, you must be filled with the Word of God. Then you have those judgmental Christians who make you think, I'm so much better than you are because of what I do. But what do we find out about that group? A spirit of critical judgment and flaunting spirituality is not a characteristic of someone who is spirit-filled. So they're not spirit-filled. They're not filled with God's spirit. They're filled with baloney. That's what it says in Hezekiah 3, verse 10. So the filling is to immerse oneself in the Word of God so that in Him you live and move and have your being. You don't think, you don't act, you don't do, unless you're controlled by His Word. That's what it means to be yielded to the Spirit. Romans 6.13, you know it. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now in verse number 19, Paul said, Yield your members as servants to righteousness and holiness. Now do you see what that is? This is not something automatic. This is something that is a conscious movement to do God's will. And when we make this movement to do God's will, who are we like? Well, we're like Jesus. What did he say? I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, John six thirty eight, Matthew twelve fifty. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So now you see we've come full circle. We start with Jesus and we end with Jesus. God intended to teach Jesus in the selection of Bezaleel. He was gifted for the work. He had the spirit and the desire to do it. So here is Israel in the wilderness with an incredibly difficult task. They must build this, this beautiful place of worship. As daunting as that task was, it didn't deter them because they had faith in God and had everything supplied by God. And when you have that, the work is accomplished. So it is with Christ. Set before him was the grueling work of redemption. Very difficult, 
to do what he did. Not more than difficult, impossible to do what he did. But that didn't stop him from doing all God required. He was ordained by God to do it. And so the scripture says that he set his face like a flint. With every determination to do everything that God asked, he would do it. And so what did God promise? Because Jesus was willing to do it. He said, I will be with you every step of the way until it is accomplished. This is the way he works with us. When he tells you to do something and gives you the skill to do it, when you have a heart to do it, then he says, I don't care how hard it is. I'll be with you every step of the way until that task is accomplished. I love this song that we sing. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example that we have in Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that we have these Old Testament stories that you show us how you work. You show us your will, the methodology that you use. It's always consistent. We look in the Old Testament and we find you doing the very same things that you said you did in the New Testament. There we find you calling people, choosing people, selecting your workmen, selecting those who will be yours, and then gifting them with all the things that they need to do the work that you require. We thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you as members of Berean Baptist Church that we have this very distinct privilege of serving you in your church as your people and knowing that every work that we do, whether it's those who are charged with the responsibilities of looking after the spirituality of the people, right down to those who do the physical work that accomplish the services to be done every week, we thank you for them all, Lord, because it's all glorifying work that you've given us to do. We praise your wonderful name for your mercy and grace in saving our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.